Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fowles. My guest today is Dr. Nicole Flores. Dr. Flores is a professor at the University of Virginia. She speaks, writes, and teaches about the significance of Catholic and Latinx theology and ethics in plural social, political, and ecclesial contexts. Today, we're talking about the Catholic religion and the Latinx community, both in terms of faith and cultural identity and the importance of La Virgen de Guadalupe. Bienvenida a este episodio, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you. <laughs> Nicole, you grew up in Colorado, and now you live in Virginia. Tell me about growing up Latina in, in Colorado. Oh, I was actually thinking about this a lot this morning because mm -hmm. I was listening to the Anything for Selena podcast <laughs> this mm -hmm. morning on uh, my way to drop off my son at work. And the the reflection there on kind of being a person who is, both a part of the United States and also Mexico, but also like not part of either one right. <laughs> in, a, in a full way is real. It really reflects my experience of growing up in Colorado. There um, is a sense that uh, being so far removed from the border, at least in terms of distance, Uh, that people would expect Latinos, uh, Mexicanos, Chicanos in Colorado to be really, you know, kind of fully Americanized. But in a certain sense, the border comes with you into into Denver, even though it's, you know, definitely not, you know, physically located on the border. And the my, my childhood was spent kind of navigating two cultures in the city of Denver, at least two cultures, sometimes three, four, five cultures, because mm -hmm. there's so much going on there. Um, But uh, I, I realized that a lot of my my uh, younger years there uh, were spent kind of developing both a cultural awareness of this being, you know, both Mexican and American in a really full sense, but also a political consciousness around being a brown woman in mm -hmm. the United States. That was not something that was ever really fully in the background. And a part of that was uh, given the uh, very prominent role that Denver's Chicanos played in the Chicano movement, specifically Corky Gonzalez. He plays, mm -hmm. you know, of course, a local role in Denver um, in the Chicano movement, but definitely a larger national role. And since Denver, especially when I was growing up, was a really tight-knit city. Uh, it's become a, a city that's so much bigger today. But when I was growing up in the 80s, everybody really knew everybody else. Uh, you know, that, that political consciousness, both in terms of activism for Chicano rights, but also, you know, uh, involvement in larger uh, public uh, debates about the economy and about The, uh, about city planning, you, you, just that minutiae of living in the city, that was really a part of my childhood in a very 
kind of explicit way in in Colorado. <laughs> right. And, and what makes me think, because you and I have uh, had conversations about, you know, growing up Latina and, and like you, you, you mentioned being a, a, a brown you know, person that became even more evident when you went away to college. Uh, because you were navigating yeah. this in Colorado, right? And sort of you were part of it. There, there, there were other people that looked like you around you, your your family, et cetera. And then you go to a primarily uh, white institution, and that is um, – you see the difference, right? You see the the contrast and, and – um, and how you not only you know the new environment, but how you are seen and perceived. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the stories I have accumulated <laughs> over my almost forty years of life. Mm-hmm. You know, I could talk about even the regional differences, like the way that the brown body is perceived in in Colorado, where where a lot of people now. I think in Denver, it's more than forty percent of the population is Latino. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that population is uh, Mexican American Chicano. So you know, my body is read in one way, in that context, it's very legible, in a certain sense, it becomes very visible mm-hmm. in, uh, in Colorado, for better or for worse. You know, I, I find that I've faced so much kind of overt discrimination in Colorado from, you know, if I walk around wearing jeans and a t-shirt, you know, and when I'm trying to do my research and archives, people assume that I'm a high school student and not a college professor uh, because it's still very rare for, uh, uh, for people who are, um, even though there are so many Latinos in Colorado, it's still very rare for Latinos to be in positions of uh, public authority or mm-hmm. uh, university professors and things like that. It's still a growing edge of that community. And yet in, uh, you know, I did my uh, most of my education in New England and now I uh, live in Virginia, which is the South. And the legibility of the brown body is just very different. In New England, it was, uh, very interesting because of the um, sizable Boricua community mm-hmm. in the places where I was. So it was more of a navigation of trying to uh, to learn how to be in relationship with um, with other brown people mm-hmm. who were, you know, of course, culturally very similar, but different in important ways. And that was a really edifying time of my life. Uh, but living in Virginia, it's a lot harder because um, given the outsized legacy of the enslavement mm-hmm. of black people in Virginia, the racial politics of the place really emphasize the um, the divisions between black and white people and brown people are uh, not really as legible here, uh, meaning that people don't really know what to think about the presence and the the ever growing presence mm. of uh of Mexicans and even you know uh US born Latinos we have a very large and growing immigrant population and people you know struggle to to relate to those members of our community but i think even more of a challenge for uh an area i live in charlottesville virginia and it's a very wealthy very elite kind of town and people don't know exactly what to do with you know the very few of us who are um latino latina latinx uh people 
who are in positions of authority here and don't really know how to read us mm. in relation to the larger racial context that shapes this place, both in the past and, and even as uh, those of us in the U.S. context know in the present, given the po- ongoing political and uh, racial strife around white supremacy in Charlottesville. Right. And to complicate all of that a little bit more is our identity as uh, people of faith, right? Whether whether you are... Yeah. Um, a person that identifies, you know, as Catholic or evangelical, or don't identify with any religion at all—that's part of uh, who we are, right? And and for for the Mexican and Mexican American community, one of the things that um, you know that stands out is um, Catholicism, right? Uh, Catholics, um, Mexican Catholics, and and what that means, right? Nicole, what drew you to study religion? Did you grow up in the church? Tell me about this experience. I I did. And I guess in the context of United States Catholicism, my experience is a little bit different in part because uh, of my, uh, my Mexican-American background. Mm-hmm. So my grandparents, especially my abuela Guadalupe, her name is was Maria Guadalupe Garcia Flores. So she, you know, she, I like to say Guadalupe was my grandma. And right. people are like, what do you mean by that? I mean, literally, <laughs> uh, my grandma was named uh, Lupita. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, her faith in the Catholic Church was very strong. And she went to Mass frequently, uh, often uh, daily Masses. Although, I, you know, she, she passed away when I was uh, fairly young. I was a preteen when she passed away. So I never had the opportunity to really ask her the deep questions about, mm-hmm. you know, what she did and why she did it. But she really modeled, you know, this, this faith of someone who just builds her, built her life around uh, her Catholic faith and raised her family in that faith. Mm-hmm. And that really touched me, especially the story of La Virgen de Guadalupe. And she told me the story. And towards the end of her life, she gave me, I'll never forget this, she gave me this little embroidered pillow with La Virgen on the pillow. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was like, oh, this is so beautiful. And there was something that that for me really resonated not just about my Catholic faith, but specifically the place of Our Lady of Guadalupe in that faith for me as a Mexican-American Catholic. So um, I actually, even though my, my grandma was so religious, I actually wasn't baptized when I was an infant, like mm-hmm. many Catholics in the United States are. Uh, my uh, my family baptized me uh, a little bit later on in my uh, uh, in my early teens, and um, I think that experience was very special for me because. Um, and it, this is so funny because uh, this is something that I hear a lot from my Protestant brothers and sisters who were baptized often in their teenage years as opposed to in their mm-hmm. infa- infancy. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem with infant baptism. I just want to put that out there for the record. But I was. <laughs> You know, I was aware of my baptism. I, I remember it. You know, I it, it's blurry in some sen- in some sense because I was you know 11 years old. But <laughs> um, uh, but I I remember that day and I was baptized alongside my sister, which is a very rare thing unless you were a twin mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Catholic mm-hmm. faith to be baptized with a sibling. But it was this very special day where uh, where we were initiated into the Catholic faith 
together. And uh, so I, I think that the, the rhythms of my my upbringing in the Catholic Church were really different than what you hear, you know, from the your average devout Catholic in the United States culture. But some of that had to do just with my uh, Latina context. It had to do with the way that my grandmother lived out her mm. faith or the way that, you know, we related to the church maybe a little bit more loosely than uh, some of our uh, non Latinx white counterparts who, you know, you know, the institution was kind of the, the be all end all. And for, and for my family, it was a little like, it was important, but it was a little bit not as important as, you know, um, having that devotion to Guadalupe and mirroring Jesus Christ in, in our family and in our home rather than only in the parish, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> and your son just got baptized too, correct? He did. Um, and it was so funny because part of so he's almost three. I mm-hmm. should put that out there. Um, so uh, one might look at our, our family situation and say, hmm, are you doing the same thing as your parents and just waiting <laughs> until you can, rem- he can remember it? But um, some of it was just the pandemic delay because uh, when he was an infant, we couldn't travel from Virginia to Colorado to have him baptized like we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had planned on it last May. And then, of course, everything shut down a year ago mm-hmm. from exactly right now. And uh, uh, so it, it just kept being put on the back burner. And finally, we were like, you know what? We live here in Virginia. You know, we we even though actually my, my husband is an immigrant from Canada. And even mm-hmm. though I'm from the United States, uh, I think over the past year, we felt the um the the migratory nature of our existence very strongly that we live far away from our families mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we will for the foreseeable future and so we made the decision you know we have to we can either wait for a few more years until everybody can gather together for a baptism in Colorado or we can baptize our son now here and now in Virginia and we we decided to baptize him here so <laughs> it was a very special day but uh yeah very complicated too because right. of you know the pandemic and and our migration from west to east in this case <laughs> right i i have to say that i saw a picture of him and he looked gorgeous with his little white suit and and he had, oh my god he has a, a design right on the back of his suit he did he had a little um image of la virgen mm-hmm. it, embroidered mm-hmm. on the back of his suit mm-hmm. and he just loved it and he looked so cute and his so dapper in his little white suit uh the the deacon who did the baptism said i've never had a better dress uh, candidate for baptism. <laughs> that <laughs> and, is great. This young man right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Nicole, you mentioned, um, you have mentioned a couple times that maybe the differences, right, or alluded to the differences of um, maybe uh, growing up as a, as, a, as a Catholic within your Mexican family um, in the U.S. and maybe um, the differences with Catholics, you know, the Catholic Church, primarily white Catholic Church. Um, were you aware of these differences or, or when did you become aware of, you know, maybe the way that your family practiced um, or the devotion even to La Virgen de Guadalupe? Um, how is, you know, that you realize it was different than, than maybe um, white Catholics? Yeah, I think there was always a little bit of a, sense of 
difference mm-hmm. uh, insofar as, you know, when you're growing up in the United States and your family's, you know, Mexican-American, uh, you always feel a little bit of distance from, uh, from the, you know, from people who, who are white. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I noticed that um, at, at a very early age that, that our home was a little bit more central to the practice of our faith than I heard uh, at least reflected in the, uh, the words or the lives of, of my friends who were, who were white and Catholic. And actually mm-hmm. we went to um, there when I was growing up in Denver, um, at least at the time, I think the dynamics of these parishes have changed since I left, but uh, we went to uh, a parish on South Federal Boulevard that was primarily uh, Mexican American and Vietnamese American and the parish uh, a couple of miles to the West was there, there were definitely Latinos there, but it was, more of a white parish mm-hmm. and that more of an assimilated parish than the one that we went to. Um, and, and there was kind of a class division even between these two parishes that people with a little bit more money went to the parish that was uh, on uh, Sheridan and people with less money went to the parish on federal where, mm-hmm. uh, where I uh, went to the parish. Actually, I grew up two blocks from the parish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always felt that tension that, it, and I realized pretty early on, like, Oh, we go to the Mexican parish and we go to the poor parish, <laughs> and I, I knew that much. But it wasn't until I really started studying theology mm-hmm. in college and in graduate school that I started realizing and, and recognizing some of the reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that the um, even coming from more rural environments uh, in some of the uh, the migration patterns. In my family, uh, we we came from rural origins, and even in the United States, you know, we we remained rural until. Um, the the past generation. So we've been um, a very rural family and Mm -hmm. rural families can't go to, you know, sometimes can't travel to the parish every week. And this is across, you know, not just, you know, uh, uh, Latin America, but this is across the world and Mm -hmm. over the course of uh, Catholic history that that people who live far from the the parish would only be able to travel in and kind of make a pilgrimage you know, uh, on occasion, as opposed to going every single week. Mm -hmm. And so the home did serve as this domestic church, this place Mm -hmm. of, um, of, uh, of faith and of the practice of that faith in ways that were not, you know, always, um, identical to the way that faith was practiced in the parish. But one example of this, um, is the role of women in the home as, uh, spiritual authorities mm-hmm. as opposed to within parishes. Of course, you know, you don't have to know much about Catholicism to know that women are not allowed to be ordained right. as priests or deacons at the moment. Um, but within uh, more of a domestic church model, and I think that my grandma Guadalupe really uh, was a that, model right? of this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that she was our spiritual authority and that the reason we went to mass at all is because we were doing what she told us to. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, she, you know, she structured our entire family's uh, relationship to the faith in, in a way that um, I think the, uh, the most institutional parishes don't quite know how to, 
uh, they, they don't quite know what to do with that because mm-hmm. um, uh, I think that um, at least in some of my research, I've come across parishes who really seen that as a threat, you know, that more mm-hmm. popular religious way of uh, organizing um, the, the life of the faith within the home and the, the, the difference in the role of gender and the role of generation um, uh, and, and the way that that kind of doesn't always line up with with the Catholic Church. I think that that's presented or with the institutional Catholic Church, I should say that that presents some significant uh, challenges for some parishes, especially as Latinos are the fastest growing group within the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and actually within both the millennial generation of which I, I'm a very old millennial. Uh, I was born in the early eighties, but uh, now we're in uh, Gen Z and both of these generations um, either are almost a majority or in the case of Gen Z are majority um, uh, Hispanic uh, Catholics uh, mm-hmm. that, um, that, that Hispanic Catholics uh, comprise the majority of both of these generations mm-hmm. of of Catholics in the U.S. Church. So, so the new church and, you know, the, the church that the U.S. has been kind of anticipating for, for a couple of decades now, uh, a U.S. Catholic church where Latinos are the majority, right. that's no longer out in the distance. That's right that's now. Right now. You know, mm-hmm. millennials are approaching middle age. I, I don't like it either <laughs> i don't like to say that out loud either but it's it's true you know that mm-hmm. the older millennials like me are are um are turning 40 this coming year mm-hmm. uh, if you graduated in the class of 2000 you'll turn uh 40 um in uh in the coming year mm-hmm. and that means that the church it's it's no longer you know oh well we have all this time to prepare mm-hmm. for you know this this latino future in the catholic church the time to prepare is over. The time right. to do it and to respond to it is now because it's the reality. And uh, yeah, that's been one of my motivations for, you know, being uh, so involved with the study of uh, Latinx Catholicism right. in part just because, you know, this this is the reality of the church now. Right. And I'm glad that you um, mentioned the importance of I guess that the domestic uh, religion, I, I, for the lack of a better term. Right? Yeah. But what happens in the home, right, in terms of who is in charge of uh, importing the, the faith and the family and, and how in many um, Catholic families, um, women are the ones that are, you know, taking on this active role of teaching and encouraging. And, and no wonder, right, La Virgen de Guadalupe is, an, is such an important um symbol or figure in in the Catholic, uh, particularly Mexican-American Catholic religion, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you and and, and just mention briefly, right, that that uh, the Guadalupe has been, it's an icon, right? Whether you're Catholic or not, um, if you are Mexican or Mexican-American, for sure you know who she is. You've seen her image. So there are various uh, artistic representations of Guadalupe, both as a holy figure, but also as a symbol of empowerment, especially for women. In an article for American Magazine, you said that the Guadalupe-Malinche binary bears much in common with the madonna whore binary, where honor is associated with sexual purity 
and shame with sexual immorality. Can you talk to us about her, how her image has been used? Um, what, what is the significance of that in our, in our culture and especially when we think about gender roles? Yeah, yeah. I, I am fascinated with so many different ways that La Virgen has been uh, interpreted and appropriated for as many different social movements as you can mm -hmm. imagine. So one of the fascinating things about her image is that she is used both as an image of, you know, um, the farmer, the United Farm Workers Movement, seeing mm -hmm. Cesar Chavez march behind her in, um, in his protests. Um, uh, and Dolores Huertas, uh, of course, she was, you know, a, a primary, um, leader in that movement as well, but also uh, La Virgen de Guadalupe is used by the contemporary pro-life movement, mm -hmm. uh, which is also a movement that is, uh, at, at the current moment, very uh, pro-Donald Trump, who is very anti-Latin uh, American immigrants. Mm -hmm. So there's all of these tensions that are kind of built up in that, but the, the image of uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe is used as a part of the, the pro-life movement, as a symbol of the pro-life movement. So part of the challenge of thinking about Guadalupe in our contemporary political life is trying to figure out, you know, how, how do we interpret her image in relation to, um, you know, the, the, the society that we live in and gender is an, essential question for that interpretation. And part of the challenge of that is that because the way that uh, Guadalupe has been interpreted by different groups and often in kind of ways that are at odds with each other, mm. it's hard to know what she means or, or, or how, how we should interpret her meaning in relation to all of those differences. So um, one example of this is, in uh, the response of uh, women activists in Ciudad Juarez mm -hmm. who have organized against the feminicide mm -hmm. or the, the, the killing of women on the border, uh, uh, primarily by members of drug cartels, but, you know, by other mm -hmm. actors as well. Um, and these uh, slayings have largely gone unpunished. So mm -hmm. They've been able to murder women with impunity. And as the women on the border organized against this terrible um, injustice and violation of their, their dignity and of their community, they, they actively chose n to make Guadalupe not be the symbol mm -hmm. of their struggle, which is really remarkable because You know, just like my grandma, a lot of these women are named Lupe. Mm -hmm. A lot of these women, you know, are grew up with the same um, uh, devotion mm -hmm. to Guadalupe as as I did in my home. But the risk that they were that they saw with that is that um, the way that Guadalupe has been lifted up by some as this image of sexual purity risked undermining their claims to justice, regardless of you know, what the women were wearing right. or whether they were working outside the home, that they would be, you know, they would kind of be associated with 
you know, being bad women uh, or with Marite uh, and right. not Guadalupe uh, if they did this. So instead, they choose the, the sign of the cross. Um, and specifically, they, they would paint the crosses pink uh, and sign the name of each woman who had been murdered on the crossbar of the cross and use that as the symbol of their struggle for dignity and kind of made the, the theological move, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to associate the women uh, and their dignity with the image of God uh, and with Jesus Christ more so than with this very complicated figure. But I think, um, and what I was trying to say in that article, which um, it's so so funny that you mentioned it because my, my husband framed the cover of that magazine uh, from that day, and it's like sitting in front of me right now uh, <laughs> on, on the wall in my living room. Um, I, I, just, I really loved writing that article. It was very special to me. Um, but uh, part of what I want to argue is that the resources of... Uh, academic theology and religious studies can help us think more deeply about Guadalupe's meaning in a way that can help us interpret her image and kind of arbitrate between different uses of her image in our public life. Um, So one of the arguments that I make in in a book that I'm writing right now called The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy, uh, one of the arguments that I make is that in order to interpret her image in our contemporary context, or really ever at all, uh, we we need to uh, pay attention to the story of her relationship with Juan Diego, mm-hmm. that any representation of Guadalupe that cuts Juan Diego out of the picture, mm-hmm. which if you look at images of Guadalupe, that all that often happens, that even though she appeared to Juan Diego, and that is the heart of that story, that's mm-hmm. the heart of the encounter, is that not that she appears, because she didn't just, she could have just appeared directly to the bishop, but right. she didn't. Mm-hmm. She appears to Juan Diego on Tepeyac, mm-hmm. and that appearing to the lowly person, the person who's been outcast from mm-hmm. uh, colonial Mexican colonial society and has been treated, he calls himself the dung of the, the people or the excrement of the people mm-hmm. in, in that story. And he sees himself as being the lowliest of the lowly. And she appears to him and empowers him to confront powerful authorities in his society in ways that would have been radical at the time. Mm-hmm. So she's a radical figure and one of that that radically endorses lifting up the lowly, which, you know, of course, I'm Catholic, but I can still know things from Scripture. Uh, right. Lifting up the lowly is from Mary's Magnificat in uh, the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. And uh, she talks about how her soul magnifies the Lord, and then she discusses and she identifies the things that God does um, and how God uh, works in history, and she makes it very clear in that song that God is on the side of those who are suffering, on the side of those who are on um, the underside of uh, society, um, or who see themselves as, you know, the the excrement mm-hmm. of society, that mm-hmm. God is actually on their side. So I think to take it back to gender, it's really important to keep that interpretation in mind when thinking about 
you know, the, this image and whether or not Guadalupe represents, you know, a pure, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, virginal woman or, you know, uh, or opposes people who aren't, you know, pure and virginal. Mm-hmm. I think that's not even the point of the story. The point of the story is that she lifts up those who have been cast out. Right, and, and brings and, dignity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicole, what is it, um, in your studies and in the work that you do, I'm sure that you've come across just different um, ways in which Guadalupe has been used. And, and, and what I mean is like the importance of Guadalupe for Latinas and the U.S. in general. What have you noticed in, in, in how her image or her, you know, the understanding of her is, is, is being used? Why is it important? Um, and I know you mentioned you know, some, some of the historical importance of, of Guadalupe for, like, certain political movements um, and how that's been used or not, you know, specifically, uh, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, the, um, uh, the, the women from, that have been murdered in Ciudad Juarez. Um, so is there anything else that uh, you have seen or has been interesting for you to see how, you know, her, the idea of her or her image has been used to... Um, I don't know, to speak about certain issues or um, just as a symbol of like cultural identity, for example. Yeah. One thing that's fascinating about Guadalupe is that even though her symbol is and and the story associated with her appearance to Juan Diego and Tepeyac Mm -hmm. is very specifically Mexican, in a certain sense, it's also a really universal story and that so many people, uh, Latino, non-Latino, mm-hmm. women, men, all genders, uh, are drawn to mm-hmm. this, this story. And that one of the remarkable things that continues to capture my attention is the way that her image is so has become so ubiquitous, not just in U.S. and Mexican culture. And of course, you can't go anywhere in uh, Mexico mm-hmm. without running into her image somewhere, you know, uh, mm-hmm. um, or and, and the same can be true in um, in uh, Latino communities and even just in, in Catholic communities in general in the United States. But even globally, you know, I've um, recently come across information about uh, in, in studies of Guadalupe in Paris and her significance there. So that's just going to be my excuse to travel to Paris <laughs> right. when that's the a good pandemic excuse. is over. <laughs> but um, uh, so um, I think specifically of uh, her significance to um, Latinos who are not necessarily Mexican uh, mm-hmm. and Latinas who are not necessarily Mexican-American um, that her image uh, being, you know, the, the image of a brown woman mm-hmm. makes the brown body visible mm-hmm. in ways that, again, are, you know, depending on where you are, either the body is hyper, the brown body is hyper visible in a way, but, you know, associated with being, you know, not uh an important person, mm-hmm. you know, the way my body is seen in, in Denver, you know, I'm walking around when I'm walking around in, you know, jeans and a t-shirt, I'm, you know, just another Mexican mm-hmm. right? in, mm-hmm. in Denver. 
or it makes the body visible in ways that are important because the brown body can be invisible in um, in the uh, economy, in our mm-hmm. politics, mm-hmm. in uh, in even in some regional uh, context where there might be lots of Latinos and Latinas working in essential worker positions, you know, working on farms, working in meatpacking complexes, working in hospitals, working in, in uh, classrooms at both, you know, um, uh, the uh, pre-college and, and, and university settings, mm-hmm. um, but but that labor remains invisible. So there's a way of her image and its ubiquity um, making the brown body both visible, but also honoring it and showing its dignity in a really significant way. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many people are attracted to, to the image and to the story is that, that it it resonates with this, this feeling of being, you know, on the outside and being brought in by Mm -hmm. this beauty Mm -hmm. that, um, that there, there's something that, that the, the beauty of the, the image and, uh, and this is conveyed so well in, uh, in the Nikan Mopuhua, the, the original, um, uh, account in Nahua of the, of the encounter between Guadalupe and Juan Diego, um, it's made very clear that he is enticed to the top of the hill of Tepeyac by by flowers and song, um, and that it's the beauty of the of that um, of that experience that draws him to Guadalupe in the first place, and that through that encounter with beauty, he comes to realize his humanity in a very full and rich sense that he hadn't been able to before because of the way he was treated in in society and i think a lot Mm. of people in our present day uh and maybe even especially during this time of just profound suffering Mm. that we feel you know we can feel so disconnected from our full humanity because i mean even what we've been asked to do to save the world, so to speak, you know, mm-hmm. be away from our friends and families and not, you know, interact as humans. That's not actually how humans are designed, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but we're, we're not designed for that. So it can help, it, it can make us feel really disconnected to mm-hmm. be away from each other for so long. But this image invites us to, to lift up our eyes and see the beauty around us. And um, I think for that, that reason, you know, uh, especially as we enter a time, I hope, of healing. Um, but, you know, it feels like our current situation is mm-hmm. endless. But mm-hmm. I, I hope that eventually we, we were in that time of healing. I see um, the potential for a lot of people to turn to La Virgen um, for, for that sense of stability and a reawakening of the sense of uh, beauty and the fullness of our humanity. Right. I like what you said that, um, you know, he didn't realize his worth or his dignity until she wasn't or uh, Juan Diego was in the presence of La Virgen. Right. Um, and, and, and I've also heard, um, you know, people use La Virgen de Guadalupe, but they also uh, uh, use La Virgen Morena. So brown, the, the brown mm, virgin. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it, it, your um, conversation regarding how, 
uh, her image for many immigrants or Latinas, uh, especially in the U.S., is significant because of that very reason, right, that she is a brown person um, of, you know, importance, historical importance and what um, she has done for, you know, for the church or for the those who um, have faith, right? Um that that it becomes something that is that goes that goes beyond just the Catholic identity, right? Um, mm-hmm. So so I, I yeah I liked um, hearing your um, you know your, your conversation about that significant part of and, and like you said, if you removed Juan Diego, we're missing <laughs> a lot of uh, what that encounter meant for specifically brown people and indigenous people, for example, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicole, you mentioned your book that you're working on. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, this work? And when are you expecting this to be completed? <laughs> I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's a question that you get asked a lot <laughs> lately. And I don't know that, you know, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I want to know so I can put it on my list of books to yeah. read. <laughs> <laughs> it's so close, Elena. Great. It's really, really close to being done. Actually, um, this morning before I was uh, uh, to get on uh, the phone with you, mm-hmm. I was uh, finishing up the, the latest revision in the index. So that's how close it is. But mm-hmm. it's called uh, The Aesthetics of Solidarity. Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy, and it will be published by Georgetown University Press in July 2021. So that's in a couple of yes, months. This year. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's it's here. It's it's coming into the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to use a, a birth metaphor, you know, we're entering the transition phase <laughs> here. <laughs> to use a, yes. a, a metaphor familiar to mothers who have labored mm-hmm. before, or or other parents who witness the birthing <laughs> event. Uh, um, but um, yeah, the, the book kind of builds on some of what I've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it begins, actually, it's, it attends very closely to the context of Chicanos in Denver. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it reflects on the way that current patterns of um, uh, of gentrification, which means mm-hmm. uh, the replacement of local residents who are poorer by those who are more wealthy. And this mm-hmm. is happening across cities right. and towns across the country, um, including in Charlottesville, where I live now, that people come in, people are coming into inner cities with a, lo- a lot of money and just simply pricing uh, people who may have been in the neighborhood for generations and generations, <clears throat> they're pricing them out of the neighborhood, and in addition to uh, kind of pushing people out of housing through the the um, uh, uh, kind of driving up of the prices, um, it is it has also led to the closure of um, businesses owned by black and brown uh, uh, business, you know, small business people. Um, it's led to public artwork being taken down, such as murals. Um, or institutions being closed, you know, you think of uh, a small Mexican restaurant that, you know, no longer fits the character of the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. somebody uh, buys them out and, you know, puts puts in a, you know, a Burger King or something right. in the place mm-hmm. of, you know, um, that. So 
I and that has really been the reality for some time in Denver. So I actually begin by reflecting on a play written about Our Lady of Guadalupe by a local Chicano playwright named Tony Garcia and um, use that as an entry point for reflecting on the way that Guadalupe is engaged in our pluralistic society and our pluralistic democracy here in the United States. I asked the question, how does a society with so much diversity uh, in religion and race in ethnic background and economic and political backgrounds, how do we come to interpret this very particular image of Our Lady of Guadalupe? As we've already said, Mm -hmm. um, this is a Mexican image and, of course, uh, very significant to Mexicans living in the United States, whether um, for recent immigrants, but also for uh, families such as my mom's side of the Mm -hmm. family who've been in the United States for, you know, I, we are, we've lost count, you know, the, the border, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed mm-hmm, us, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, right. um, uh, the image is very significant. Um, but, um, the book explores, um, some of the challenges of the prevailing, uh, political uh, philosophies such as, um, uh, those of John Rawls or Martha Nussbaum, what we would call, uh, broadly called liberal political philosophies, not liberal like conservative and liberal, but mm-hmm. liberal uh, meaning um, uh, a, the specific philosophical tradition that um, that wants to create a pluralistic society by by putting uh, religion and other uh, kind of thick notions of what it means to to live a good life and putting those out in the background of society mm-hmm. uh, and, and that that's, that's how we'll, you know, gain more equal, equality within society is by not looking at our differences. And this, this kind of thinking has been especially influential in uh, United States law and in, uh, in our policies and our politics, et cetera. So I make the case using a reflection on Our Lady of Guadalupe that that's not the best way to go about forging a society with so much difference and that Guadalupe actually helps us to see that we need to engage differences, mm. but we need to do so in a way that, that doesn't um, uh, use the differences to do violence mm. to other people that we use, that we have the potential to interpret our differences as a community and to use that as an opportunity to build ourselves up and to build a just society where um, we don't need difference to go away in order to live in a situation of equality. Mm-hmm. So um, I do that, you know, through uh, a journey through the history of La, La Vieja de Guadalupe and then, you know, some political philosophy, but then also just paying attention to how she um, helps us to see our current political moment mm. and um, interpret some of the things that that have been troubling to our society in recent years, such as here in Charlottesville, the um, 
uh, the events of August 11th and 12th uh, of 2017 and the, the, um, the white supremacist violence that was brought to our town. And in my, the last chapter of the book, I really take that on through the lens of Guadalupe and through aesthetic solidarity, asking questions about what it means to live in a society together in a just way. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to, to read it. And, and, uh, and, and I'll request a sign autograph copy from you when it comes out. (laughs) You got it. You got it. (laughs) Thank you. Nicole, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. (laughs) 